0: Well, I figured I'll give a few announcements concerning Joe. I had talked with him. Holly and I called him and FaceTimed him last night for those guys who were wondering what was going on there, and uh, he actually looked really good. Um, I know that uh, he misses his family, and you guys, I'm sure, well, are well aware that when it comes to the protocols with COVID-19, uh, we can't go and visit him. I asked him if I could sneak him some sushi in there, and I was told I was not able to, but that they are feeding him well, and they're treating him great. But yeah, I think uh, he would love to be home, but they're just monitoring his heart right now and, and everything. It seems like when it comes to COVID, he's kind of battled out somewhat through that. I don't want to say that, and then hit, you know hit him in the head again, but, uh, but nonetheless, he was quite tired after last Sunday's sermon. And then we were over at the house, I believe, Monday and Tuesday, and he was pretty fatigued, and then I believe it was Wednesday, he went and visited his uh, his doctor, and they wanted him to go to the hospital to get checked out, and he went to the ER, and got a bed and eventually a room, and so now he's you know being taken care of. I know he would love to be here. I know he'd love to be preaching right now, but praise God. Uh, he has allowed me to come and share the word with you guys today. And I am not only excited, I'm humbled and, and just blessed to be able to dig into God's word with you because I do believe when it comes to God's word, the way we handle it says a lot about who we are the way we handle it says a lot about where we have Christ in our hearts. The way we look at God's word and the way we esteem it, I think, I believe, says a lot about who we are in our walk with Christ. And so, Whenever I get a chance to share the word of God, and that doesn't matter if it's to somebody on the street or to my family, it doesn't matter if it's right here from this pulpit, it doesn't matter if it's for 511 News or Good Fight Radio Show, it doesn't matter where it is, if I am going to present the word of God, I am going to do it and handle it as if it is the word of God because it is. This word that we have, this this Bible that we call the Bible here, our standard This right here is talked about and spoken about by the apostle to Timothy when he says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that every single word of scripture, of graphe, every single word is theanustos. It is God-breathed. Now, I, I think about that a lot. It's something that I meditate on a lot, God's word, what his word has to say, how I can be mature, ready for every good work, is by making sure I am in the Word of God continually. And so when I get to come up here and share the Word of God from the pulpit for the Sunday sermon, and not only deliver the Sunday sermon, but we will be taking communion at the end today, the fact that I get a chance to do that, I do not look at it and just say, oh, that's cool, I'll be able to go talk and tell you life stories for the next hour maybe about an hour, we'll see, Tony will cut me off. I have only ever been discipled by uh, Pastor Joe (laughs) in terms of my pastor. And so when it comes to time, I I typically do run my time very uh, similar to how he runs it, which is on a clock that doesn't really exist. So I will do my best to keep you guys hopefully excited about the word of God as I am. I think about um, when it comes to the word of God, over and over again in psalm 119 it is the biggest chapter in all of scripture and in psalm 119 i believe it's 176 verses and there's only one verse out of 176 of those verses that don't doesn't mention specifically or reference in some manner the word of god over and over again whether it's how a young man will keep his way pure whether it is how god would open up our eyes and and reveal to us wondrous things From His Word, whether it would be that we would write God's Word on our heart that we may not sin against Him, and when Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in thy truth, thy Word is truth, our sanctification, when it comes to the Word of God, how we are to be sanctified is from the Word of God through the Holy Spirit who also wrote down these words. So I say all that. As a means to get back to what our mind needs to be when it is renewed, what our mind needs to be when it comes to being into and in captivate captivated and in captivity with the mind of Christ, because one of the first verses as a young believer, when I first came to the Lord. I began reading scripture from Matthew and went all the way through Revelation and then started back in Genesis and went forward. And one of, the letter, one of the first letters you get to after the gospel message is 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians, there are so many different verses that I have implanted on my mind, on my heart from 2 Corinthians. It is a powerful, powerful letter. I believe it's amazing, especially when you accompany it with 1 Corinthians, where Paul was addressing a number of issues, one of which you have Paul addressing specifically a man who was at best sleeping with his stepmother, but it could have been his own mother, and they were accepting him into the church as if this is great, almost boasting about it. Oh, well, we got this guy in. And sadly, I believe that the rebuke there in 1 Corinthians is a rebuke that should go out and be rebuked in many churches today, that we just accept everybody. In fact, if you visit your local high school, and I have a number of times, being a former wrestling coach and also being involved in FCA, I cannot tell you how many different sermons or gospel messages that are, are absolutely not only ridiculous, but sad. And they, the same boasting that happened in 1 Corinthians that Paul was addressing when it came to sin, the same boasting that why are you allowing this in? The little leaven raises the whole loaf. Do you not realize what you're doing to your congregation? That same message is now preached. The one that he preached against is preached so often. Just come as you are. Just be that, that sinful, wicked person and be the wolf amongst the sheep and then guess what? Eventually you'll turn into a sheep. Not always. In fact, typically what that wolf does is devour the sheeps around them. So we need to pay attention. We need to mark and avoid and we also need to recognize repentance and that believers are to be bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And then also after you have this this, this engagement, this talking about Paul writing against what is going on, the acceptance. He tells people in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that you shouldn't even eat with this person, that it's not really loving to take someone in and accept them and say, yes, well, you're a brother, come sit next to me. That's not the loving thing. That's a lie. That's what Satan wants. The loving thing to do was to say, hey, I'm not going to act like you're my brother in Christ while you are a swindler. I'm not going to act while you are engaging in sexual sin, while you are getting drunk. I'm not going to act like you are one of us. It's not loving to do that because all you're doing is giving them a pill so they can get to hell quicker. And so what we want to do is check that out. And then 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived, liars or fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, drunkards right? Swindlers, none of them will inherit kingdom of God, but we want them to become the such were some of you. And what I find interesting is you had a group that Paul was talking to in 1 Corinthians in which they were accepting sin. Then when we get to 2 Corinthians, we are told quite clearly that it's not that they are accepting sin now. It's that when somebody repented, they are not understanding the schemes, the schemas, the devices of the devil that they were not accepting him back upon repentance. So you see, that's why I love thinking about 1st and 2nd Corinthians. I love these, these letters because we have both, a, both problems, almost a dichotomy, where you have the problem of the acceptance of sin and then you have the problem of not accepting one back. Then you have the problem of not of not accepting one back upon repentance. But then the verse that I actually wanted to get to, and I'm sorry for getting sidetracked a little bit there, I just love these two letters, is in Second Corinthians chapter 10. And I say this because this is something I have written on my heart. In fact, when Joe and I, uh, when I finally convinced Joe three years of prayer, please let's start a podcast, um, I think this would be great. And at that time, I just wanted to listen to Joe talk on that podcast, and then he eventually said he wanted me to be on there with him, but I wanted to call the show, Every Thought Captive, from this verse right here in 2 Corinthians, and I'm going to read from verse 5 and verse 6, because I think that these, uh, chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, I think that these verses are so powerful, they're absolutely powerful, and you remember that Jesus said that, what is the greatest commandment? where he was asked and gave us the answer to what the greatest commandment is, to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's what I want to talk about today, and that has to do with the mind, making sure our mind is captive to the obedience of Christ. And so I want to go right to here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, actually I'll start at verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I love that. Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ if we could write that onto our hearts so that our minds would understand it, if we could write that onto our hearts and say, Lord, whatever thought, my thought life, you want my thought life, Lord. I want my thought life to be captive to your obedience. There are so many times and so many, you know, discussions that we may have, especially I deal with a lot of young adults, uh, younger kids as well, and so often, people, when it comes to sin, it will be, how close can I get to the line before I sin, right? That question of, is this movie okay because it only has a couple of nude scenes? Or, is this movie okay because he only blasphemes the Lord 50 times, right? You, you think about those things, you say, no, we need to have our mind renewed. We need to bring our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And I think when we, when we do that, when we model that, when we understand that, we grow closer and closer to our Lord. I was recently having a discussion on our Good Fight Ministries Facebook page concerning assurance of salvation. And you see, this is why I believe doctrine, theology, and where you stand on the word of God really, really matters, Because bad doctrine not only leads to bad living, right? This is why the Apostle Paul told Timothy to watch his life and his doctrine. And in doing those, he will save himself and those who hear him. Because bad doctrine will lead you you to bad living. Every single time. And so, that's really important. But also, not only does bad doctrine lead to bad living... Bad doctrine can lead you to have such a false understanding of how good our God is. You know, I was talking to someone at this last, like I said, online, and this person came from the Calvinistic perspective. And what most people don't know about the Calvinistic perspective concerning assurance of salvation is that you truly cannot have it. They may say it. Well, you know, Abba, Father, I cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit tells me that I'm saved. But the problem with that is, is that the very man, John Calvin, taught a doctrine that had what we call evanescent grace, that he had an idea That if somebody is apostate, if somebody turns from the Lord, it's because they had a fading away of grace. In fact, instead of trusting just me and my opinion, I will read from John Calvin's Institutes. He says here, Experience shows that the reprobate are sometimes affected in a way so similar to the elect that even in their own judgment, there is no difference between them. He says, that if somebody, somebody who apostatizes, someone that is reprobate, someone that turns, can actually have an appearance of salvation. Actually, they look so much like the elect that even in their own judgments, they do not know that they are saved. Not saved, I'm sorry. They do not know that they are not part of the elect. He says, Hence, it is not strange that by the apostle a taste of heavenly gifts and by Christ himself a temporary faith is ascribed to them. Not that they truly perceive the power of spiritual grace and the sure light of faith, but that the Lord, the better to convict them and, the, and leave them without excuse, instills into their minds such a sense of goodness as can be felt without the spirit of adoption. Do you see what he's saying there? That they can have such a, perceive the power of spiritual grace, all the more to be convicted. As if God is making people think they are saved in order to convict them more. And one of the really dangerous things when we get dig- digging into this doctrine is the fact that that same God says in Second Peter that it would be better that they never knew. In Luke's account of what Jesus said, he says very clearly that those who have more light, many stripes are added to them. You getting what you deserve is bad enough. Just going to hell is bad enough. But God is quite clear in his word that there are different levels of judgment. And so when I look at this and I see this statement, it breaks my heart. That somebody could hold to Calvinism and and see this and not have the assurance of salvation that they should have. And I I don't want to read the entire quote because it's more nonsensical that I want to get into, but here's the last line. He says, nor do I even deny that God illumines their mind to this extent. There is nothing inconsistent in this with the fact of his enlightening some with a present sense of grace, which afterwards proves evanescent. That's in his Institutes 3.2.11. And so when I see this, this breaks my heart for someone who would think this, that thinks that God could illuminate their mind in thinking that they're saved just so he can judge them harsher. This is why doctrine matters. This is why understanding when Jesus said, for those who come to him, you never cast them out is very important. One of the things I love about the Word of God is not only when we study it that we exegete that we look at text and try to get out what the author says and a lot of times what we do is we examine whether it is a letter we examine whether it is a uh, biography like the Gospels for example and one of the things that you'll find is over and over again a lot of the epistles and a lot of the letters or even if you look at the Gospel of John it will specifically tell you what the purpose of that letter is it will specifically tell you what the purpose of that biography in the gospel of john he tells us very specifically that the reason that he wrote it that you may believe in jesus christ and have life in his name the reason the gospel of john was written specifically was so that you can be saved all the ends of the earth the son of man lifted up and drawing all men unto himself the reason he wrote the gospel of john the reason that god wrote the gospel of john through john is because he wants us to come to know him. And the reason that people do not is not because God is picking and choosing arbitrarily by divine fiat who can be saved, but in John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus told them exactly why they weren't going to be saved. They search the scriptures as if they have eternal life in them, but they don't recognize he is the eternal life. And he says that they were unwilling to come to him that they may have life. The reason someone does not come to Jesus, the reason they have no assurance, is because they are unwilling. And what's sad when it comes to this assurance argument is that it breaks my heart that people besmirch the character of God. God. The fact is, is that Jesus over and over again wanted us to have insurance. And the same John who wrote the gospel of John also wrote 1 John. And what 1 John is, if you ask me, what if what is this entire letter? I would say this letter is describing to believers the difference between a believer and a non-believer. The difference between a child of God and a child of the devil. And so over and over again, that's what he says. But guess what? John once again just as he did in the gospel of John, writes in 1 John 5.13, the reason for that letter. The reason for that letter is that you may know you have eternal life. 1 John 5.13, that you may know you have eternal life. When Jesus told them not, not not to say, oh, I'm so glad we have this power over demons. He said, you shouldn't rejoice that you have power over demons. You should rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Not, they may be written one day. Hopefully one day you can have somewhat of an assurance of salvation, but it could be evanescent, it could fade away. No, it's important that we recognize the assurance that we should have. And we need to have our minds renewed And captive to what Christ's word says and not some doctrine that came almost three or four centuries uh, after the church was birthed. And so we want to make sure that our doctrine is in line with the word of God and it's captive to the obedience of Christ. It is beyond important that we understand this. It is beyond important that we recognize that we have what we have in the scriptures is the character of God over and over a loving God. One that lifts up his son and draws all men to himself. One that opens his arms over and over again to a stubborn people. This is my God. My God is good. When I see Jesus, I see the most loving person ever, without a doubt, when you go through the scriptures. So whenever I have any doctrine that I hold to, whenever I have anything I want to believe, I want to make sure it's exegeted from scripture. God has given me his word And when I want my mind renewed, I want to make sure that I have a good memory. Now, I think it's really interesting because there's two ways we can go about this when it comes to having a good memory according to the word of God. Sometimes people have a memory where they romanticize their old life. In fact, it happens in the scriptures. In Numbers chapter 11, verses four through six, the Israelites there under Moses were romanticizing their days in Egypt. It says this in chapter 11, verses four through six. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, "Who will give us meat to eat?" We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Israel began to romanticize their old life under Egypt. And I want to point this out because while we're destroying speculations, making sure we bring our thoughts captive the obedience of Christ. I believe something that will happen, something that does happen to those who leave the world, leave the dominion of darkness and come into the dominion of his marvelous son. I believe one of the ways that Satan attacks is romanticizes your old life. One of the ways that Satan attacks is that he brings back these memories of your old life in any positive light rather than us looking at that and saying, I thank you, Lord, for forgiving me of my wickedness. He will romanticize your ex-life. And that was going on in Israel. Remember the garlic? Remember all the food? The melons? They began romanticizing what it was like. And one of the reasons I want to read from this is because in In Romans, we're told that everything that was written, all of the Old Testament, every scripture that we have from the Old Testament was written for our strength and for our encouragement that we might have hope. So when I look at this, I want to recognize what took place and I wanna say, I don't want to do that. I don't wanna fall into that lie. And here's the thing. When it comes to recognizing the tactics of the enemy, that should be something of great importance to us. In fact, even in sports, this is important. You know, I remember in the early 2000s, it's been a really long time since the Raiders were any good. So in the early 2000s, they almost made it to the Super Bowl. There was the tuck rule, if anybody remembers that, in the snow. And Tom Brady, you know, they decided to say he didn't fumble, probably because he, you know, sold his soul. But uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, doing witchcraft with his wife. But uh, but nonetheless, when it came to um, the Raiders trying to win the Super Bowl, a lot of people thought, oh, man, they, they, they messed him over, you know, on that replay and, and changed this rule. They would have gone to the Super Bowl under John Gruden. And John Gruden, after that, after they lost and the Patriots went on to win the Super Bowl, John Gruden went to another team. He went to the Buccaneers. And the Raiders were still a good team, and they hired a coach that was under John Gruden, And both of them the next year made it to the Super Bowl. So now it's John Gruden facing his old team. And what John Gruden did for his team to get ready to play the the, the Raiders was... Act like he was the quarterback, the one that he had resurrected his career in Rich Gannon. And he would show them all the plays. And this is what they do when they come out this way. And this is what they do when they come out this way. And the entire two weeks of preparation was John Gruden, the old coach who trained up that team and knew those tactics, showing his team exactly what the game plan was. And guess what happened? The Buccaneers absolutely throttled them. They, they, it was a, it was a horrible Super Bowl. They just got absolutely annihilated. And John Lynch, one of the safeties was mic'd up and he was laughing and like, we know every play, it's like coaches back there. And of course, if the defense didn't use the preparation that was given to them, didn't use all the enemy's tactics, knowing exactly where they were going to go with the ball and which way they were going to go and didn't recognize them, that would be silly of them not to listen Nah, coach. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to pay attention. God has given us the playbook of our enemy. What does he do over and over again to make people forget how good they have it in Christ? To to, to have people's minds not renewed, not obedient to the scriptures, not obedient to Christ. What does the enemy do with his tactics? And here we find out that one of the things the enemy likes to do is bring back memories and romanticize the old life romanticized when we were in bondage to sin in fact in second peter chapter 2 he mentions that specifically that people that have just escaped people that have just escaped those new believers that they're enticed by false prophets who promise them freedom but they themselves are slaves to corruption and what we have here is god taking them out of slavery And then them going and looking back and saying, oh, you know what? Wasn't it so great when we had that garlic? Wasn't it so awesome we had that? But what did it actually, what was the reality of what was going on in Egypt? In Exodus chapter one, it starts us here and says, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us, and fight against us, and depart from the land. They were worried about losing their slaves. They were going to get too mighty. Verse 11, so they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread. Of the sons of Israel, interestingly enough, when we look at church history, this is actually what happened in Rome. Tertullian writes, "Do you not know that as you mow them down in the in the third century, early third century, as you mow them down, as you mow them down, the blood of the Christians is the seed of the church. Whenever they tried to mow them down and afflict the church, would explode. It's when the church gets fat, dumb, and happy that's the problem." Not when they're being afflicted. So many people, guys, have put their hope. <coughs> excuse me. So many people have put their hope in a revolution. They put their hope in the fact that there's going to be this revival in the end times, guys. I don't see revival. The Bible actually says multiple times it's a falling away. Once again, renew our minds in what the Scriptures say. We're not going to take up the antichrist and beat him down and and and, and gain victory. Our God has exhaustive foreknowledge and has already told us in his word. It's those who endure till the end who are saved. We need to make sure our minds are renewed in what the scriptures say. And we need to recognize that over and over again, when the church is afflicted, when they are trying to mow down the church, that is where we have revival. That is where we have people coming to Christ ad nauseum. And this is what was going on all the way back in Exodus. They wanted to appoint the taskmasters, afflict them. And guess what? They continued to multiply. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field. All their labors, which they rigor- rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. One of them was made Shipra and the other's name Pua. And he said, when you were helping the Hebrew women, To give birth and see them upon the birth stool. If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Guys, this is the stuff they were romanticizing. Over and over again, they were romanticizing. Forgive me for my cough drop, my throat's a little dry. But this is what they were romanticizing. The old time back in Egypt. The old time back in Egypt with the melons and the garlic. Oh, forget that, you know, our firstborn sons were being murdered. Forget that they had put taskmasters over us to make us bitter. The enemy coming and romanticizing this. Don't think that he will not come in your life and romanticize the old life when you leave it. You know, I I think it was John a couple Wednesdays ago who talked about, don't go back to your ex-girlfriend, right? And I find that very interesting because that's exactly what happened here. They're being reminded so often of how great it was under bondage. And this is what the enemy does. He tries to romanticize your wickedness. The bondage of, not Egypt, but the bondage of sin that you are supposed to render the old man dead, but you're not. You're romanticizing of it. This happens so often. In fact, I've been with brothers in Christ talking about, praise God, that we are saved out of stuff. And I have heard and listened to a romanticizing of the old life. And that is not what God wants us to remember. Romanticizing... The old life so often you'll see that with boyfriends and girls you know I went to high school here in, in Simi Valley and so often you'd have these couples that would break up and get back together and break up and get back together and you'd be like why do you keep going back man like haven't you figured it out you guys just don't work it just doesn't work but when you're alone and you romanticize about those good times you forgot about the horrible things where she keyed your car or tried to light it on fire or something you forget about those things, and it's like you romanticize all these good things, even though it was absolutely horrendous and horrible for you. You know, when Holly and I were first married, the first Mother's Day, Holly, we didn't even know she was pregnant, and I remember that message vividly because Joe gave it on not only Deborah, but also on JL. JL. And I remember that story, and I loved that story because I literally, like, I was like, okay, I know we just got married, but if you're pregnant and we have a girl, I want that baby to be named Jael. Because it's a great story of her old life. And not just accepting the old man, accepting the king into your tent and and feeding him, making him full, and hiding him. No, that woman took (laughs) a, a tent spike he, she filled him up with milk when he was thirsty in order to make him tired, and when he fell asleep, she took that tent pike, or uh, that tent um, spear, whatever you want to call it and drove that thing through his temple until he was stuck to the ground and dead. And it was, it was a vivid picture of rendering the old man dead. And I know that so often in my own walk, I remember as a new believer. I I was, before I was saved, I I would do a lot of, uh, I don't know, strange things, always because of ego and and pride, but like any of my old friends um, who knew me in high school, I wouldn't even go to the bathroom by myself, Uh, I was kind of like a chick like that, right, like I was like, hey, you know, I was like, I just didn't want to be seen walking by myself, like I was the weird guy walking by myself, and so I was just like that. And Friday night, Saturday night, I always had to have something to do every single night. I had to be with friends, I had to make sure, even for ego purposes, over and over again. And then I came to the Lord, and uh, the night I, I gave my life to Christ, I took my phone and I deleted all the numbers of people that weren't either family or somebody I came to Christ with, or at least professed belief, even if the, some of them were not real believers. And... I remember, you know, going through my phone, and I'd have to, I wouldn't even look at the text message when they'd come when I was a new believer. I would just delete them before reading them if I didn't know the number, because I was like, I don't want to go back to that old life. I don't want to go back to that old life. And I remember one specific night, as a, as a newer believer, I was sitting there, and my friends were out of town, not answering phones and stuff like that, all my believing friends, and I remember just being like, wow, this is, this really stinks. This is really lonely. I don't like being by myself. (laughs) So I started reading the Word, and I was probably reading for a couple hours, and then it got late at night. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go work out. I'm going to go to the gym. So I remember I was at the gym. I'm listening to music, and I'm shooting uh, baskets and doing some sprints and stuff. And I remember the romanticizing starting. Man, remember you'd hang out with everybody. You'd have these drinks, and you'd be the, the funny guy at the party and all this stuff. And romanticizing that wickedness. And I remember, I'm in a gym, probably three in the morning, shooting, a bas- shooting baskets and listening to worship and repenting right there for romanticizing that old life. Repenting right there and in tears saying, Lord, I am so sorry that I just let those thoughts come into my mind that would romanticize something so wicked. The sin that put you on the cross, Lord. The sin that, that nailed you to a cross on my behalf, that you would say to tellest paid in full about me on that cross and I sat here and romanticized about it in my mind. And this verse, this 2 Corinthians chapter 10 of bringing every thought captive was all the more vivid it wasn't just words on a page that I read. It wasn't just something that I had memorized. It was vivid to me right there where I said, God, Let me write your word, also as Psalm 119 says, let me write your word in my heart that I don't sin against you like that. Lord, help me to take every thought captive because that was something, I was heartbroken that I had done that, that I had gone and in my mind thought well of the wickedness. And I think that a lot of times, this is how Satan tries to use our memories and watch us try to romanticize the wickedness and i don't want to do that i want my mind renewed in christ but there is a memory that i want to have there is a reminder of things that i need to be reminded of in fact second peter is really really important for this it's really really important that we remember who we are in christ i began talking about having assurance of salvation because I believe it is so important, and I do believe one of the ways the enemy attacks is he goes after the assurance of salvation. He goes after the assurance that we should have in Christ. And I don't want anyone who listens to this to not have assurance in Christ. Their assurance should have should be controlled and constrained by who Jesus is. It's very interesting. I've, I've seen people who do not believe in the assurance of the believer, go to things like Matthew chapter seven, verses 21 through 23. And you guys may remember this. Matthew chapter seven, verses 21 through 23 says, many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these miracles? We've done this all in Jesus' name. And God gives us a direct requirement, gives us a good understanding, renews our mind. Jesus does in that and says he never knew them. But why? Not because you can't have assurance of salvation, but the context of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, starting specifically in verse 15 as it goes through, is showing believers, showing disciples, showing followers of Jesus how to look out and find the false prophets. So a text there in Matthew chapter 7 is supposed to be a text that says here's the identifiable properties of a believer from a non-believer. And in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not only does it say, hey, check this out. If they're doing miracles, if they're doing deliverance ministries and all these things in Jesus' name, but don't actually follow the Lord, they don't know me. They've never known me. Never known him. Because they never actually follow the commands of the Lord. When it comes to your obedience... When it comes to your sanctification, something that in the book of Hebrews says, without which no one will see the Lord, when it speaks of those things, when it speaks of sanctification, it is the fruit of the believer. It is the fruit of the believer. It's not, if I just keep doing more, eventually I will feel saved. But the fact is, is the more you cling to Jesus, the more you abide in Christ, the more you will be sanctified, the more you read his word. Go to Psalm chapter one. And don't right now, because we're gonna go, we're, I'm gonna start digging into 2 Peter before this is over. But in Psalm chapter one, if you need something to just memorize and have on your heart, go read Psalm chapter one, because you're given two different men there. You're given two different men. There's the man who meditates on God's word day and night, and he bears fruit. There is the other who does not, sits with the seat of scoffers, That man is, guess what? You have a man here bearing fruit, not only bearing fruit, but he is like a tree planted against the water. You could have water rushing and the tree gets firm because it's foundation. But then the other man is like the chaff or the bark that blows away when the wind comes. If we'd be like Job, who esteemed God's word more than his necessary food, if you be like Jesus said, man not living on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that we would store up God's treasure in our hearts, we would have that assurance. But we do this by abiding in Christ, that we would not forget and forget the salvation, forget how good we have it in Christ and romanticize as the, as the wicked one wants us to, the old man or the dead man, or maybe you're a a young man who's followed the Lord. Maybe you're someone who has come up in the Lord because your parents, just as Timothy, your parents have brought you up to know the scriptures which are able to save your soul. Maybe you're one of those. But you're looking at the Canaanites. You're looking at the pagans and you're saying, I would love to do those things. Maybe that's where your heart is, that you want to engage in those things. Guys, I would try to ask you to take some advice from somebody who did, and please do not go that way. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. Far too many times, far too many times have I spoken with parents who are believers, parents who really love Jesus. And when I talk to them about their kids, some of which maybe I've coached them in wrestling, maybe I've, I know them from growing around, around me here locally. And I talk to them, I say, Do you not see what they're getting into? Do you not see? And they remember their old life and that they didn't follow the Lord, but then eventually they came to know the Lord, and they say, Oh, they're just they're just they're just putting out those wild oats, right? The problem is, when you plant those seeds of wild oats, when you plant those seeds of wickedness as young men and women, they come back to reap. They come back to reap. And so what happens is, is these young men and women think, and parents, for some reason, get this false idea that these young men and women are going to go out, going to go experience the things of the world, and eventually they'll come back. It doesn't always work that way, and that's a very dangerous game. How would you like them to die in that state? It's something, we need to fight for our children and recognize that Satan hates them too. And if he can't get you, he'll go after them. So we need to start looking at Jesus as the wonderful Counselor, he is. We need to start looking at Jesus as the salvation that we have in Christ, and it should be a joyous thing that we cling to Him. That we wake up and kiss the Son. Your examples are so important to not only your children, but your examples are extremely, extremely important to the outside world as well. We're going to read from Second Peter, and I'll try to go as quick as possible here. But in First Peter, chapter four. There's something that should happen when you are a believer. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter mentions this. He says that they should marvel the outside world. the non-believers should do two things about watching your life. They should marvel and malign you. They should marvel and malign you. They should look at you and say, why don't you run to dissipation like we do? Why don't you go to drinking parties? Why aren't you a part of the riots as we burn down buildings and steal? Why aren't you a part of these things? And they should look at you and do two things, marvel and malign you. They should marvel that you do not run in those dissipations and then they should malign you for not doing it. They shouldn't say, oh, you know what? He's just like me. Now I want to be a Christian because now we we all get drunk together and go burn down buildings and steal things. No, because guess what? You're not a believer either if you're doing those things. First John is very clear that entire book. He says the message that they got from Jesus, John says specifically in 1 John 1, 5, right after explaining that they saw and they touched and, and they, they actually felt Jesus, right after explaining that, he says, this is the message we heard from him, that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If anyone walks in darkness and says that they have him, says that they know him, says that they're part of the light, they're a liar. There's no truth truth in that person. But those who repent, it says, and ask forgiveness of their sins, Jesus Christ's blood washes us. That's the difference. In 1 John chapter two, it's not about perfection. 1 John chapter two in verse one is very clear when it says it's not about perfection. But guess what? His writing was so that they wouldn't sin. They wouldn't have a practice, that the narrative of their life would not be a narrative of a, that a person continues in wickedness. That narrative would be gone, that the narrative of their life would be one of righteousness because those who practice sin are of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning. But he who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. And in 1 John chapter 2, just to get away from sinless perfectionism, he says, you do have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous, when it comes to you even falling into sin. So we need to recognize that. Jesus said also in Luke 17 that stumbling blocks were unavoidable. James chapter 3 verse 2 he said very clearly that we all included himself and that was not too long before he would die. He said we all stumble in many ways and he's specifically speaking about the tongue there. So we need to recognize these things, and what we do is, when we do fall into them, we don't let those sins be the narrative of our life and say, it's just who I am, I struggle in this area. No, we say, I'm going to fight, and I'm going to go to battle, because in Romans chapter 8, I am told very clearly that the believer is, the believer's life is a life of victory, that we are, as the Bible calls, more than conquerors, or overwhelmingly conquer not through yourself, but through him who loved us. Jesus was very clear in John chapter 15. Apart from him, you can do nothing. But I want us to have good memories. Good memories when it comes to Christ. And I would encourage you, if you guys didn't listen to the series that Joe did on the pillars of our faith and building our foundation on these pillars here from Second Peter, I would encourage you to check that out. And I believe Chuck Estrada wrote or drew on his notes one of the most incredible drawings of somebody just sitting around. I'm like, man, I can't get stick figures, and this guy's doing this in his notes. It was just incredible. And I, I was going through Google Docs the other day, working on a project, and I saw that, and I was like, man, I'm teaching on this. This is really cool. And I, this is why I said we need to have a good memory, not the memory of the old. And Paul talked about he hadn't, he hadn't gotten perfection yet, he hadn't been resurrected yet, but he was looking towards the goal and not looking back. That's a little different than having a good memory of the salvation we have in Christ, and here's what it says, before I read the rest of, in the beginning of 1 Peter, or 2 Peter, he says this, for he who lacks these qualities, the qualities we'll, we'll read, is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. And guys, don't think this can not happen. This is something that happens quite often, actually. Forgetting the purification of his former sins. So many people, I think, when they're not walking in these truths that we will read from, so many so often doubt their salvation and forget the purification of their past sins. You can come to a place of disobedience where you literally forget the purification of your past sins. That's what the scriptures teach. Let me start here in, cha- in chapter 2, verse 1 of, I'm sorry, chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 1 of Second Peter Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus Christ is God, without a doubt. Peter knew that, and all the apostles knew it, and every gospel writer knew it, and the early church knew it as well. But nonetheless, there's something that I love to do when it comes to reading scripture I love going into—we could call it a hermeneutical spiral. Uh, When it comes to looking at what the Word of God says and saying, "God, what are some of the ways that I can know what You're trying to say here?" Not the one of the most dangerous things asked at a Bible study. What does this text mean to you? I don't care what it means to you. I care what God is trying to say to me, not what I'm trying to put into the text. And so, one of the ways we do that is understanding not only you can go into Greek words in a specific verse you can go into letters written, what is the genre, you can go into uh, the the immediate context, a couple verses next to it, we can do 20-20 vision, something I like to espouse, which is read the first 20 verses before and the 20 verses after, things like that, to help you gather the context. And this seems like such a simple statement, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, that seems like such a you know a simple statement a greeting but i want you to bring back some memory here bring back some memory of who peter is because we know if we read first peter verse 1 uh, chapter 1 we know that who he was writing to and we know he's writing to the same audience because in second peter chapter th- 3 he says specifically that he had already written them before so we know Quite clearly, he says in in chapter three, verse one, this is is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. If we bring back some memory of who Peter is and then we recognize who he was writing to, he was writing to a number of churches that would have Gentile believers in Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He was writing to, to many churches that would be filled with Gentiles. Now, why does that matter that Jesus, or I'm sorry, that Peter would say to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours? Why would it matter that he wrote that to Gentiles? Well, think of Peter for a second here. Think of not only book of Acts chapter 10, but also think of what Paul spoke about of Peter. What Paul talked about in when he wrote the letter to the churches of Galatia. Think about something that took place there. Paul does something specific in Galatians chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 1, he builds his case as an apostle. That he was not just simply given a ministerial position by a laying on of hands, but that he himself was called from a magisterial perspective, from God himself. he He is an apostle by God himself. He shares his testimony there. And not only does he build his apostleship quite clearly in Galatians chapter 1 on the fact that God is the one who had called him to be an apostle, but then he builds it up on the testimony of the other apostles. He builds his case for his apostleship on the testimony of the apostles, specifically Cephas or Peter. Specifically, he uses Peter as an example as to look, I took my, the gospel message that I've been preaching, and remember what was going on in those churches in Galatia. Paul had already visited them, he had shared with them the gospel, and then Judaizers came in, one of the first attacks on the Christian church, Judaizers came in and said, no, yeah, you gotta have Jesus, and also, you gotta be circumcised. And he said, no, you're cut off, you're severed from Christ if you do that. Not that if you could circumcise yourself from Christ, but if you do it in order to be right with God, you've missed the gospel message. So Paul, before he goes into all the things that they are wrong about, builds his case for his apostleship. And he does it at the feet of God himself and then also the other apostles. And he says in the beginning of chapter 2 that he shared the gospel message that he preached to those churches... He shared that message with the apostles. And when he shared that message to the apostles, they added absolutely nothing to that message. So after Paul builds the case for apostleship on God himself and then the apostles, specifically Peter, he then says later in that same chapter that Peter stood condemned. Why? Peter stood condemned because guess what? He would hang out with the Gentiles, but then as soon as he was around the Jews, he would go away from them and only sit with the Jews. And so Paul rebukes him to his face. It says that he rebuked him right to his face because he stood condemned and he wanted to warn everyone else around him. I think that's really, really important. And you think about this. And you think about Peter having this problem. Then you think about Acts chapter 10. Mind you, the Holy Spirit had already been poured out and yet Peter still had struggles with this. Peter still had struggles with the Gentiles being welcome in. And so you have this situation where this was Peter's struggle and it wasn't until the centurion that Peter, God came to him and Jesus came to him in a dream, explains to them quite clearly that Gentiles can be saved And Peter understands that. And then Peter writes this letter, what's called a circular letter in the early church. A circular letter was one that typically would go around to a number of churches in that area. And so they would circulate it amongst them. So in this letter, first and second Peter, was one of those letters that would be circulated in a circular manner. Right? Philippians written to the church of Philippi. Right? Specifically addressing things there. Where Peter is addressing something that's going on in a major region here. And so we look at that, and we see that, how beautiful those words, writing to churches that would have Jews and Gentiles in there, and saying, you have the the same faith as me, an apostle. I think that's beautiful. said, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And how, guys, we're going to get into exactly how we have a good memory. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Guys, Every one of these things that he's going to tell us to practice, we do not get from ourselves. We do not get from our flesh. Every single one of them, as Jesus promised, apart from me, you can do nothing. Everything comes from God himself, that he's the one who has bestowed these upon us. For he has granted, for, for by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence, guys, it's not always going to be easy. All diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Think about The fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Over and over again we see this. When you see the attributes given uh, when it comes to the uh, armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Quite clearly, the first thing you have to do is fall under the mighty hand of God. Quite clearly, the first thing you have to do here is recognize who is giving you these attributes. Quite clearly, the first thing you need to do when it comes to any trial, when it comes to remembering who, what we have in Christ, the first thing you need to do is fall under the mighty hand of God and recognize apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. It's through his power, through his word, through his Holy Spirit. And so we look at those things. So we remember these things so that guess what? Verse eight. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say in John 15 about the unfruitful branches? He says they're cut off and thrown into the fire. We make sure we're practicing these qualities by the power of the Holy Spirit in order to have that assurance, in order to have a good memory. Verse 9. For he lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, not having a good memory, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Verse 10, assurance. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never, never stumble. It's just like when the Apostle Paul said that we need to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Guys, it's not a, I have a checklist and here are my moral ambiguities and things that I need to fix. It is, am I loving Jesus more? Am I falling more and more in love with Jesus? Because I believe, for, my, for me personally, and maybe this is for yourself, when I first came to the Lord, when it came to repentance and turning from wickedness, a lot of it was, I gotta do these things I, I gotta make sure I'm doing these things because I know what it says in 1 John chapter five. It's quite clear that God's commandments aren't burdensome, they're for my good. So that's why I'm not going to be a fornicator. That's why I'm not gonna be a drunkard, right? I know that his commandments are not burdensome. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. I, need, I, I recognize that in my mind. But then also, when I go back and I look, as I grew in Christ I grew in my love for who he is and not only what he did on the cross, but just who his character is and the fact that he would come and save me. And so when it came to not practicing sin, not that I'm perfect, I know I'm not, I haven't attained perfection, just as Paul said in in Philippians chapter three, I haven't attained perfection, but guess what? Even though I'm not perfect, I know that the narrative of my life is not one that is bent on sin. That I say, Lord, the reason why I don't do this is because I love you, and the more I come to know you, the less I want to be like the world. The more I come to know you, the more I want to be like you. That we are supposed to be imitators of God, according to Ephesians chapter 5. That we look at our hupagramos, our ABC stencil. That is Jesus, our example, our hupagramos, our stencil, so that we know how to walk our life. And we do that. And if we do that and practice those qualities and become more and more like Jesus as we're called by our father to do, the fact that when it comes to predestination, we are predestined, if we know Christ, we are predestined to be like him. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We need to recognize that. Then you will have assurance because the word of God gives us assurance. The word of God gives us assurance because it gives us the character of God and who he is. We don't romanticize the wickedness, and when we do, we bring our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And I think that then we will have a proper memory. I want to finish out this chapter real quick because I think it's powerful. Verse 11, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. And have been established in the truth which is present with you. You know, it's funny, um, a lot of people show that the book of Jude and Second Peter, they're sister letters. There's a lot of statements made in Jude that are also here as well. And I find it interesting he uses this, this term, you already know them. You already know these truths, but I desire to remind you. And Jude says the same thing, for I desire to remind you, though you know all things. That the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, you remember those memories? After saving people of the land of e- Egypt, subsequently destroyed all those who did not believe. Christ, we are to cling to him. And if you are practicing and the narrative of your life is sin, it is because you are not clinging to Christ. That is ex- exactly what it looks like in Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, it is quite clear. That when people are cut off from the tree, whether you are a natural branch, a Jew, or you are an unnatural branch, a Gentile, that they are always cut off for one reason. That one reason is unbelief. And we do not want to be those who fall in unbelief. And then, as Hebrews chapter three, verse 12 says, they are taken away by the deceitfulness of sin. See to it, brethren, none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart, That falls away from the living God. That he would be carried away by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't think that sin always is going to be very easy to spot. A root of bitterness that may spring up. Those, you know, people don't, and I'll tell you this, when it comes to husbands cheating on their wives, they don't usually slip down, fall, and accidentally commit adultery. It starts usually at the mind. It starts on the computer. It starts at the cell phone. It starts with a lunch date you shouldn't be on with somebody of the opposite sex. Over and over again, those things take place, but it's the little foxes. It's those little things that come. And eventually it turns into unbelief. We need to have a memory, a good memory of what we have in Christ. In Philemon verse six, it says, I pray you are active in sharing your faith. So you have a full understanding of every good thing you have in Christ. Bring those things to memory by talking about them. I know how it is with my wife. A lot of times I'll be out and I'll be talking to someone or you know, doing something workwise, or whatever it is. And when I talk about, yeah, I wouldn't be able to do any of this if it wasn't for my wife's efforts and the things that she does. When I talk about those things, when I express them, I also get those things brought back to memory. The more I brag about my Jesus, guess what? the more I remember just how, how good I have it in Christ. And I will never romanticize the old dead man. I'll bring my thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, I wanted to take communion with you guys here. Um, I think I got, I got a couple of minutes to do that, Tony? Okay, cool. I want to take communion with you guys um, because, you know, I've, um, I've never, I, I've done a couple of uh, altar calls at different events and, and things like that. But when it comes to, calling people to repentance as a, uh, as somebody we've done a lot of, um, you know, trips up into the mountains with, with young people sharing the gospel. We usually try to bring someone who's not saved. Um, And instead of just simply doing like a, a a presentation and then saying, do you want to come and receive Christ? One of the things that I like to do is communion. Now, that can be a little sketchy, but one of the things I do is I make sure they recognize you're only allowed to take this if you're a blood-bought believer because there are those, and we're told, and we were talking about the Corinthian letters today, there are those who were told that they were doing it in an unworthy manner and God was literally killing them, okay? So I'm very serious about communion. Saints take communion because we are, we are doing a, a mini Passover here. We are recognizing our Passover lamb in Jesus Christ. And so when I give a gospel presentation, I look at communion as a great gospel presentation because it's a gospel that was preached in Isaiah 53. It's a gospel that was preached in Leviticus. It's a gospel that was preached throughout the Old Testament, the scriptures that promised the salvation that would happen in Christ, that those Old Testament saints look forward to the day when the Mashiach, the Messiah, would die on the cross, that he would be the bread of life, that they would look forward to the day that Jesus would die on a cross and then us saints today, we look back the same salvation that Abraham had by faith, according to Romans chapter four, the same salvation they looked forward to the day when the Messiah would come, we look back to the day that he did come and that I'm told quite clearly in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah, he'd be bruised, he'd be pierced and we think about this bread, we think about communion, it's something very serious because we're recognizing our Jesus poured out on that cross, bruised, beaten. The wrath of God poured out on him. And it says something in Isaiah chapter 53. There's a lot of great verses, obviously. Such a powerful, especially the, the real messianic start of it starts in chapter 52. But in chapter 53, it says, it pleased God to crush him. And when I first read that, I was like, what is that? I don't get that. What do you mean? This is your perfect, obedient son. This is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with a love that happened before creation, an eternal love before there was even wrath. And you say that this God, this Jesus, this God-man, that it pleased you to crush him. And I'm remembered why. Because that was the only way. To salvation. Because Jesus said, Let this cup pass from me if it would be your will. If there was any other way to be saved, let this cup pass. But this cup, Jesus drank. He drank on our behalf. He took the wrath of God upon himself. He was the Passover lamb, He was that promised Messiah. And when I look and think about it, please God to crush him, I think about my own child my firstborn son. Don't get me wrong, sometimes it's good to discipline, but (laughs) Jesus never did anything wrong. But I've always thought about it this way when it comes to salvation. If if somebody came to me and he said, hey, we have these people and the only way to save them, they're going to die. They need your son's blood. He has to die. That's the only way to save these, these people over here. I gotta be honest with you. I think Romans 5 gives me uh, this honesty as well. And he said, you know, hey, come on, you, you got to give up your son. He has to die. I don't know if I could do it. I don't know. I honestly don't know if I could give up my, my son. And then, you know, he's like, okay, I understand. He, he comes back and he's like, I don't know if this helps. I don't know if it sweetens the deal at all. But, hey, um, the, the people that your son needs to die for, they're all criminals, every single one of them. Be like, um, well, that makes it a little easier, thanks. No, thank you. It's like, okay. Goes, comes back. One last time. He's like, hey, this is the last thing. I'm hoping this will be the one thing to get you to give up your son, to die a horrible death in order for these people to be saved. You know all those crimes I talked about? Every one of them, they actually ultimately were committed against you. They lied to you. They stole from you. They said horrible lies about you. All those things, they all were against you, actually, You've got to be kidding me. No, that doesn't help. But that's exactly what Romans 5 says happened. Romans chapter 5 says, While we were yet sinners, the Christ died for us. The love that he has, it pleased God to crush him because he knew that was the only way by which us to be saved. That at the cross met not only judgment, or the wrath of God poured out on Jesus, but also love. Perfect love that God provided for us, the Passover lamb. So, With all that, that's the seriousness that we take communion, recognizing that we have Jesus who's poured out his blood. So I'll take this with you for anyone who has it at home. Lord, I just want to lift up and thank you so much, Lord, for the death on the cross that Jesus Jesus paid, Lord. My, the things that I did, those wicked, wicked deeds that I did, Lord. He was bruised. He was pierced, Lord. We take of this communion, Lord, thanking you for what Jesus did on the cross, in Jesus' name. And Lord, I look at the blood, Lord, as your word says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, there's no remission of sins, Lord. I thank you for the blood that was poured out on Calvary's cross and salvation that happens in Jesus' mighty, powerful name.